following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Welcome this morning, and we are uh, coming to the end of the book of Matthew, and of course that means coming to uh, uh, really the climax, um, Jesus on the cross. And so let's begin by uh, turning to Matthew chapter 27. If you have a Bible, you can follow on screen Matthew 27, starting in verse 27. We're going to actually break the, the cross into two sections, part this week and part next. So we're going to just read down through verse 44. Uh, let's read. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put on a scarlet, put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of, the, of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had, crushed, when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. <clears throat> And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers uh, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Um, we know uh, that Jesus' death on the cross uh, was to pay the full penalty of sin. Right? Uh, that's, what, that's what this is about. Jesus is our sacrifice. And he, uh, by dying on the cross, takes in every way every penalty and consequence of sin. And of course, uh, Romans, Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. So it meant that Jesus needed to taste and experience to the full the agony of death. Uh, But sin has other consequences as well. Uh, And the cross involves suffering uh, and experiencing every consequence, every result of sin. Um, uh, And of course, one of those sin is the ultimate cause of every uh, sickness, every human ailment, uh, which are all really pictures of death creeping in. 
right? Uh, and of course, uh, Jesus uh, suffered physically, and in many ways in those few hours, he, he, he suffered the physical pain of any kind of, uh, of really sickness or ailment. He suffered the consequences of the pain uh, that comes with sin. Uh, but also, sin is the root of, of all our shame and dishonor, right? Uh, now, it's true that there are in our world, uh, people have <laughs> people have become so corrupt in their minds that there are some sins that people are actually proud of. And you actually see people boasting and kind of flaunting uh, some of their sin. But the reality is that everybody has sins that are so bad, things in their life that are so horrible and so shameful that they don't want anybody to know. Right? And that's because sin ultimately brings shame upon us. It is dishonoring. It is a sign of our own moral weakness and our failure. Right? Uh, and whatever we may experience of that here on this earth, uh, when we stand before God, uh, the shame of sin will be painful for those who have not had their sins removed. Right? And in fact, most of this is one of our dreads. Like, did you ever have these thoughts that when you get to heaven and we stand before a judgment, there's going to be like a big movie screen and God's going to replay every bad thing you did, right? You ever have that fear? Um, well, praise God in Christ. Uh, there is no replay. Our sins are removed. But for those who have not had their sins covered with the righteousness and the blood of Christ, right, it's going to be a shameful thing. You stand before God and that shame is going to be overwhelming of their, their failure before God, right? Um, it will be an, uns, an, an, an unspeakable shame as we are exposed before the holiness of God. Right? So, so what's interesting in Matthew um, is Matthew actually gives very little attention to the physical suffering of the cross. In fact, the crucifixion gets, gets half of a sentence when they crucified him. Right? It doesn't get a lot of attention. It doesn't go into, unlike uh, some recent movies who just like go on and on and on about the suffering. Uh, Matthew kind of skips over, and actually most of the gospel writers mostly skip over the physical part of the cross. Uh, now, of course, for, for people who lived in, in Jesus' day, uh, Matthew's readers, probably most of them had seen it. They didn't need it to be described. Uh, just the thought of it for them would have brought enough images. Um, but it's interesting that, that what the Matthew does focus on, uh, in this passage especially, is the, the mocking, right? The mocking of, of everything from the soldiers to the thieves that were crucified with Jesus. They all mock him. And, and really, Matthew uh, focuses on highlighting the shame of the cross. Right? Jesus bore the shame of sin as well as its guilt. Um, and there's all, as we will see, all these mocking voices. But what's amazing is that in these mocking voices that were intended to humiliate Jesus and to uh, belittle him and to ridicule him, in those very voices are actually great truths about the purpose of his death. And so uh, we want to look this morning. What, what do the mocking Christ tell us about Jesus and his great sacrifice on our behalf? Uh, so let's look first at, at uh, briefly at just the shame of the cross itself, and then we'll look secondly at the mocking voices. But first, let's just look at the, the shame of the cross itself. Uh, the, the cross was intended by the, the Romans; it was a, a means of executing bad people, right? criminals, uh, 
rebels, uh, murderers, uh, and it was the ultimate form of punishment. Uh, but unlike how it oftentimes has gotten practiced in modern times, the cross was, was intentionally designed to be shameful at every level. And uh, uh, Matthew doesn't talk a lot about it, but he gives us some symbols and pictures. Uh, and let's look at those just real briefly to look at how the, the cross was shameful in itself. Uh, first, it says in verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene. I'm kind of jumping into the middle of our passage here, but verse 32 They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him, this man, to carry Jesus' cross. What's interesting is that Jesus goes to the cross, and by this phase, when he's actually going up to Golgotha, uh, the task of the executed was to actually carry the cross beam. And unlike some of the movies where they're carrying the whole cross, uh, most likely, most scholars believe that he was only carrying the cross beam and that the upright post was, was permanently mounted in the ground. Uh, so it wasn't a heavy beam. It was just a, a six or seven foot piece of wood, a couple meters long. Uh, but that's what they would nail him to or tie the prisoner to. Uh, but what's interesting is that by this point, after the beatings and scourgings, Jesus was already so weakened that he couldn't even carry that one piece of wood. He needed help. And, uh, of course, the, the worst thing for the soldiers would be for the prisoner to actually die before he got to the cross, Right? Because, again, they wanted it to be a humiliating death. And dying on the way was not really acceptable. So, uh, so they recruit help to help Jesus. And what you see is Jesus going to the cross, uh, not in strength and some kind of noble, heroic effort. You see Jesus already so weak, so pathetic, he can't even carry his own cross. Uh, to make matters worse, they force a stranger to help him by the, by the very name of Simon. Right? And as we read this, it should remind us of another Simon who promised to be with Jesus to the very end. Right? And here's another Simon, a total stranger, who is recruited to help Jesus. And, and we ask, where are his disciples? Where is Simon, who could, who could have been helping Jesus, and he's not there? Uh, so Jesus is all alone, and a stranger is forced to carry his cross for him. Then in verse 33, when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Uh, they picked a particularly horrible place, and uh, we don't know why it was called Golgotha. Uh, one uh, archaeologists way back a long time ago found a hill that kind of looks like a skull. So they think maybe that's why it was picked. Certainly, it was a place that was frequently used for executions. And so it was a place that whether or not people were dying there or not, as you pass by, you'll be reminded of death and of suffering. And it's a, it's a reminder that uh, it, sounds, it sounds like hell. And it's a reminder that the cross was in every way intended to be a hell on earth. And Jesus experienced that hell. Um, but then it also says that before they nailed him to the cross, they, gave, they offered him wine mixed with gall. Now this is a perplexing verse for scholars, and, and there's not really agreement on what this means. Uh, but there's basically two options. One, that the gall uh, was some kind of pain reliever. Uh, and that mixed with the wine, it was a way to maybe ease or soothe uh, the pain of the cross. Um, the, other, the other is just that 
it was it was wine, which could have been somewhat of a relief, but it was just mixed with something that made it taste terrible, that made it essentially undrinkable. Uh, if it was the first thing, Jesus refused it because he he did not want to be drugged. Right? He wanted to experience the full pain and suffering of the cross. Uh, if it was the second, he refused it just because it was undrinkable. Either way, the point is this. Uh, on the cross, there, was, there wasn't even the slightest little relief. Right? There, there was not even the hint, the slightest hint of relief, not even one sip of, of cool drink to soothe the pain. Uh, it also reminds us of Psalm 69.21, which says, They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Um, the most shameful thing uh, of the cross, though, was that it really put the, the guilty person on display for everyone to see in a way that just literally exposed them. Verse 35, when they had crucified him, that is when they nailed him to that beam and, and hoisted it up and fixed it to the upright post, then they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. Uh, Jesus uh, was stripped of even his clothes. Uh, and in a very public place, they would, they would put the cross in a place where it was on a major uh, highway, if you will, where many people would pass by. And you kind of get how this would work. It's kind of like uh, in school in the old days when the disruptive student got put uh, you know, in front of the classroom with a sign that said, I will not talk in class, or I will not chew gum, right? And I do, apparently now that's child abuse. Uh, hey, Nolan, Nolan, I'm getting way too much base feedback up here, okay? It's driving me crazy. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, so, so, so the cross was, uh, was public, right? He was put on display as a spectacle, and at that, stripped naked, right? And there was, there, there's a shame to nakedness. There's a shame to the cross. There's a shame to being public. Uh, and there was no dignity at all. And we're remind, reminded again in Psalms 22:18, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Um, uh, and then, of course, they, 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 they label his crime. Verse 37, and over his head they put a charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Uh, right? So it wasn't a video screen, but the point was to, to label this person with their crimes. Right? To publicly show why they were being executed. Uh, but it was even worse for Jesus because the sign was, was really a joke. Right? It was the, the Romans ridiculing the Jews that this was their king. Like this pathetic, uh, homeless rabbi from Galilee was their teacher and their king, right? Um, so it was humiliating. Uh, and, and um, of course, Jesus was not ashamed of the charge because he knew at some level it was true, even though it wasn't how they understood it. But it was meant to ridicule, right? It was, a meant, to, it was meant to uh, be a jab at both Jesus and the Jews, um, uh, to the Romans, they think they deserve such a pathetic excuse as a king. Uh, to the Jews, they think Jesus is not worthy to rule them. right? And they would rather have a, a rebel uh, like Barabbas, their hero. Right? Um, and finally, verse 38, he's, uh, 
verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Uh, these were likely uh, companions of Barabbas. They were likely plotting some kind of conspiracy or treason against Rome. Um, and, and so Jesus is in the company of, of just guilty criminals. Right? He's not distinguished. He's not set apart. He's just one of three uh, criminals hanging on a cross. Um, and, and so the whole picture, the whole spectacle is intended to be shaming and humiliating. Right? Uh, in addition to the physical suffering, just the way it was done was, was a shame. Um, but, but then to make matters worse, uh, not only is the, sh- is, the, is, is the cross shameful, not only is it physically uh, a pain and agony beyond anything I can imagine, uh, a slow, uh, laborious death. And they said that some people crucified could live for two or three days, hanging, suffering, struggling, uh, struggling for life. Um, uh, on top of that, uh, what Matthew records here is as those pass, people pass by, they hurl insults and mockery at Jesus. Uh, and this really is um, his focus, um, not so much the physical suffering, uh, but really this, this mocking voice, right? this mocking, humiliating shame that was being hurled at Jesus. And it really is an incredible kind of cruelty, right? I mean, I just can't really imagine watching somebody who's suffering in this much pain and torment and then heaping on top of that uh, insults and jokes, right? It really is an extraordinary kind of inhumanity and cruelty. Uh, We have a saying, an idiom in English, don't kick somebody when they're down. And this is kind of the ultimate picture of that, of kicking somebody when they're down, taking somebody who's already experiencing Huge humiliation and just heaping on top of it insults and mockery. Um, So, uh, Jesus experiences the fullness of shame and humiliation of sin. Uh, He takes that consequence of sin uh, that we deserve and he took it on himself. Uh, But what's amazing and what I want to spend a little more time looking at is, is... uh, the truth in their words, right? The truth and the meaning in their words that really tell us uh, and un- unlock for us great truth about the purpose and glory of the cross. Uh, so let's look at, at five of these uh, mocking voices. The first comes from the soldiers, right? And the soldiers set up this kind of mock uh, uh, crowning of a king, Right? Uh, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Right, so a whole a battalion could have been as many as 600 soldiers, maybe a couple hundred, we don't know. This huge gathering of soldiers who gathers just to mock Jesus. And they strip him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The Romans think this is a great joke. And the soldiers despised the Jews. As as Roman soldiers, they hated the Jews. And and this was a great opportunity to poke fun at a so-called Jewish king. 
And so they dress him up like a king, but with cheap substitutes. And kings in that day, purple was one of the most difficult um, colors to extract. And they would mostly extract it by taking uh, the shell of some kind of um, uh, clam that extracted purple ink. But it would take uh, maybe a thousand clams to get enough purple to make one robe. So something that only extremely wealthy people could afford. Uh, But they put on Jesus not a purple robe, but a cheap reddish robe that was worn by all the Roman soldiers. Kind of a a cape, maybe you've seen in movies, right? A cheap cape, but it was a cheap imitation of a real royal robe. And instead of a, a golden crown that a king would wear, they weave for him a crown of thorns. And instead of a golden scepter studded with jewels, they give him uh, literally a reed or a bamboo stick, right? Uh, and they sit him down before them like a king, and mockingly they bow before him and cry out, Hail, King Jesus! Which was uh, what they would have said to Hail, as, uh, said to Caesar as Caesar passed by or in Caesar's presence. Hail, Caesar! They cry out, Hail, King Jesus! Uh, and it's a joke, and they're laughing. And they're mocking, uh, thinking that this is just the poorest excuse for a king. This ridiculous, broken, bleeding figure. Right? And then they began to abuse him, beating him on the head with a stick and spitting in his face. Right? In any culture, spitting on somebody is just one of the lowliest and most degrading things you can do to a person. Right? It means you are worthless. Right? And they do that to Jesus. But here's the amazing thing. Uh, And and we could ask, what good could possibly, could we see, what good could we possibly see in such a horrible display of humiliating a prisoner? Well, here's an amazing thing. Uh, As they do this to Jesus, in the very act of going to the cross, Jesus, Jesus is showing himself to be the greatest example of what a leader and a king should be. Right? He is going to the cross, laying down his life for his subjects. And by doing that, he's proving himself to be a king like no other. Uh, most kings ride to power on the backs of their subjects, right? Uh, most kings seek their own power and glory at the expense of their people. Uh, that was certainly the kind of leader Pilate was, and also Herod. Uh, Caesar's Uh, most of them were not much better. The emperors of Rome were usually not much better than Pilate. Uh, And some were actually far worse. Uh, Think of modern-day leaders. How many modern-day leaders uh, make great sacrifices for the sake of serving their people? (laughs) I don't know of many, right? Uh, That's not the picture of leaders we see around us. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus was a king. And he was a king who was going to the cross to do what was absolutely necessary for the subjects of his kingdom. Dying for them. Right? And he shows himself to be uh, the best possible kind of leader and king. And so, yes, they mock him as king. But in so doing... Uh, they really prove that Jesus is exactly the kind of king they wish they all had. And certainly for the Jews. right? The reason the Jews wanted out from underneath Rome so desperately was because the Romans treated them so badly. 
And ironically, Jesus is the very kind of king that they desperately want. But of course, they don't see him. And they don't acknowledge him as their king. But he is the king who lays down his life to save his subjects. Uh, Secondly, um, verse 39, And those who passed by derided him. These are kind of the crowds. Maybe the same crowds that cried out for Jesus' crucifixion and for the release of Barabbas. Uh, They derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, why don't you save yourself? If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Okay, they think this is funny, right? They think, you know, you said you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. If you could do that, surely you could save yourself. Surely you could just come down off that cross right now. Um, the word here derided is literally, and interestingly, the Greek word that we get the word blaspheme from. Okay, and it could be used of God to, to dishonor God, but it could also be used of a person to dishonor or shame them. And so they're ridiculing Jesus. Um, they, they don't realize that in fact they are blaspheming God's Son. right? Um, and maybe Matthew wants us to see that meaning. But here's what they say. You know, if you're truly the Son of God, if you're truly uh, powerful enough to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days then uh, surely you could save yourself. Um, And you could come down from the cross. But we know the truth is this. Uh, We know that, of course, Jesus could have come down from the cross. Right then. He could have called on the Father. He could have called on angels. Uh, He'd already said that the the Father would send 12 legion of angels to rescue him. Jesus could have called on that moment, and he could have, as the Son of God, come down from the cross. But in doing that, he would save himself, but he would not save us. And, and, and we know that by dying, he literally becomes the new and better temple. Right? It is by staying on the cross, and it is by enduring the, the shame and pain of the cross, that Jesus, in fact, becomes the way that we come into God's presence. You see, we need to remember that the temple had a couple important functions, but uh, the main goal of the temple was it was how you drew near to God. If you wanted to know God, if you wanted to be close to God, if you wanted a covenant relationship with God, the only doorway for the Jews was through the temple. And they had to come bringing a sacrifice to deal with their sin. And through the burnt offerings and through the blood that was shed and ultimately brought into the holy place, an opening was made uh, for them to come into God's presence, at least the high priest. And he actually, once a year, could actually draw into the very holy of holies, into the very presence of God. And so it was a place where they dealt with sin, but also where they gained access to God through the veil. Uh, And and for the Jews, it was the only way. For the Jews, there is no other way into God's presence, which is a problem for the Jews ever since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That's a real problem for them because now there is no means of atonement. There is no means to gain right access to the presence of God. But of course we know that in fact Jesus did destroy the temple. Not physically and not literally, but he made it obsolete by his own death. 
right? And the book of Hebrews really unfolds this and unpacks it. And so we could right now stop and read the entire book of Hebrews. I'll leave that to you to do at home. Um, but it really unpacks the meaning of this, that Jesus is now the new and better temple, a new and better sacrifice. But here's two references that highlight the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. With the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons and with the ashes of a heifer, uh, sanctifying for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Right, so in Jesus dying on the cross, he made obsolete all the sacrifices of the temple. He made them pointless and unnecessary. And then in Hebrews 10, he, he tells the second piece, the drawing near before God. Hebrews 10:19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us do what? Let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Right? Jesus does replace the temple. Uh, he rebuilds it not as they imagine, but in his own death, his own cross. He becomes the living temple by which we have access into God's presence. Right? What they mocked and made fun of was actually the truth. Right? A truth that they desperately needed. Third thing, verse 41. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Um, the first was the common crowd of, of Jerusalem, maybe pilgrims coming for celebrating Passover. But now we have... Uh, those uh, most responsible for orchestrating Jesus' death, the Sanhedrin, the priests, the scribes, and the elders, they also come to behold the fruit of their labor, so to speak, uh, to see firsthand this one that they so desperately wanted to get rid of, uh, dying and suffering. And they're not content to just watch. They also have to mock him, right? have to hurl insults upon Jesus, uh, to ridicule him. And their ridicule comes out of this. You, you saved others. You had the power. And, and what's interesting here is they, they never deny Jesus' miracles. Right? And, and, and the, the priests and, and the, the leaders of Israel could have, could have verified or disqualified any of Jesus' miracles because there were countless eyewitnesses around. And they never, they never discredit or discount Jesus' miracles. They knew that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Right? But in spite of all that Jesus had done, uh, it has no impact on them. All those miracles bounce off of them. And now when Jesus is on the cross, and, and it appears that Jesus is in the grips of full and complete defeat, right? and the cross looks like defeat, right? We know it's his victory, but to them, 
it was it was it was defeat, right? Uh, of, of complete and total losing. And they say to him, uh, at this moment when Jesus seems the most powerless and helpless, you claim to help others, you helped others, you saved others, but now you are powerless to save yourself. You are powerless to save yourself. Right? But, but here's the truth that we know. That it is only in dying that Jesus is truly able to save anyone. It was actually by Jesus staying on the cross and dying there that it, that it was the means by which he could truly save anyone. Right? What Jesus had done before the cross were, were cool miracles, but they were never redeeming. Right? Lazarus was raised from the dead, it was cool, but guess what? Lazarus is going to die again. Right? And if that's all that Jesus did, uh, Lazarus would not be saved. It is only in dying that Jesus truly can save anyone. That he truly has the power to save them. It is by Jesus' death that we live. And so here's a remarkable thing. Jesus' great power, and they, they laughed that he was powerless, but here's the thing. Jesus' great power is seen in his overcoming the temptation to do exactly what they said. Like, here's the thing. The easiest thing for Jesus to do would have been to get off the cross and come down. To end the suffering. To end the pain. To end the shame and prove to them who he really was. That would have been the easy thing. The hard thing to do, the thing that took the very power of God, was to stay on the cross and to endure its shame and its suffering. That was a much greater display of God's power at work in in Jesus. That he did not get off the cross. Uh, Next thing. uh, In verse 42b, the, the Jewish leaders continue on, He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross... And we will believe him. In other words, you claim to be the Messiah. You claim to be the King of Israel. Here's the thing. You come off the cross right now and we'll believe you. Like that would convince us and we'll become your followers. Um, but, but here's the truth. Maybe they would believe him then. Maybe they would have, have been in awe of him and, and ascribed him to be their Messiah. But, but then Jesus actually would not be worth believing in. Right? Uh, he would have nothing to offer that could save them. And faith in him would be pointless and meaningless. It would mean nothing to believe in a Jesus who did not endure the cross. Right? It is by the very act of staying on the cross that Jesus can truly save those who do believe in him. It is because of the cross that he's worthy of our faith and our belief. Lastly, verse 43. Again, the the Jewish leaders keep piling on the insults. And their final one, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Um, 
So as they see Jesus on the cross, he is such a, a picture of misery and suffering, and, and he is so pathetic that uh, in their minds, God himself could not, could not approve of Jesus. Uh, we run into the same problem sharing Christ in a Buddhist worldview, right? Uh, to Buddhists, uh, a person who suffered such a painful, horrible death had to have really bad karma. And that's kind of what the Jews are saying here. Uh, you know, if, if, if God desires you, look at you. Like, how could God desire somebody who's come to such a tragic and horrible end? Certainly you must be the epitome of bad karma, of unrighteousness. You must be deserving of this horrible judgment. Right? Uh, they don't mention the fact that it's actually the result of their own corrupt justice. <laughs> Uh, right, that got Jesus there, not God's judgment. Uh, but of course, we know different. We know differently. Um, we do know that uh, that God, um, that if God would deliver Jesus, it would save His only Son. And we know that this Son was precious to the Father, both at Jesus' baptism and on the, the Mount of Transfiguration. The Father declared, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I delight. Right? We know that the Father loved the Son, and of course Jesus knew the love of the Father. And in fact, it was Jesus' very obedience that caused his Father to delight in him so much. That Jesus was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Right? That delighted the Father's heart that he had a Son who was absolutely obedient. And Jesus, of course, does trust God. He goes to the cross and he wrestled with, uh, with this issue in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was because he trusted God that he went forward to the cross. Right? He places his very life and soul in the Father's loving care and he goes to the cross and to death entrusting his soul and his life to God the Father. But in trusting God, it also means that he is trusting in God's uh, plan for the ages. He's trusting not only in the person of God, but he's trusting in his will. And that was, the, that was the wrestling match in the garden, right? Father, not my will, but your will be done. And in that, Jesus is saying, look, I trust in you as my father, but I trust in your plan, that it is good. And what is God's plan for the ages? What is God's plan for the ages? John 3.16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God does not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Yes, God could have saved his Son but he could not save his son and save the world. And God chose uh, to sacrifice his son to save you and I. Ultimately, uh, they repeated, they mocked, and they repeated, you know, if you're so powerful, you're so great, if you're the Messiah, come down from the cross. And Jesus could have, right? He could have. But the amazing thing is, is not that he came down from the cross, but that he did not. 
And it was his very love that kept him there. Right? It was his very love for you and I that caused Jesus to stay and to endure and remain on the cross. It was God's very love for you and I that, that kept him, held him back from rescuing his son. So it says in Romans 5, 6 through 8, For while we were still, still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, it's, it's kind of sad that uh, Matthew is 28 chapters long, and, and so few, few verses really get focused on the cross, right? And the reason it's sad is because, really, this is the thing we should be contemplating daily, right? Uh, we, we cannot spend enough time and energy uh, and, and attention thinking about the cross, right? Because in the cross we see the incredible depth of God's love for us. Um, we should, and, and, you know, just let us never tire of meditating on the cross. Um, seeing even in the mockery of it, a uh, wonderful truth about what Jesus' death meant for us. Yes, we should also uh, reflect on the empty tomb. <laughs> I think the Catholics spent too much time on the cross and they never got to the tomb that's a problem. Um, but remember that the tomb only makes sense when we see it through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He stayed there. right? He stayed there. Um, so that's why uh, the author of Hebrews tells us, uh, finally in, in Hebrews 12.2, Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that uh, we probably spend far too little time Time looking to the cross, uh, looking to your suffering. And Father, I confess that um, I don't I don't like to go there because it is honestly quite unpleasant, and it's hard to to stare long at the cross because it is such a terrible reminder of what Jesus suffered. And it's, it's a terrible rebuke of my own sin. It's a painful reminder of the, the dreadful wages of sin. And yet, Lord, you call us to, to look to Jesus who endured the cross, despising its shame. And Lord, we know that in many ways the cross is the great embarrassment of Christianity. Uh, that, 
that the gospel, that the, gospel the, the message of, of, of Christians would be so much easier to proclaim if we could remove the cross. And yet, that is where its power is. Uh, even in the shame of it. And so, Lord, help us to embrace the cross. To look to it. To remember it. To look often at all that Jesus endured on our behalf. To take upon himself our guilt and all of our shame. And Lord, we also rejoice and give thanks that because Jesus took my guilt and my shame, I no longer live with that guilt. And I no longer have to be ashamed. That I can come boldly into your presence with no fear of rebuke or condemnation because the shame and the guilt of my sin is removed. It's gone. Along with the very sin itself. Where we praise you that Jesus took away every horrible effect of sin. And in its place we have the righteousness of Christ and access uh, to an eternal relationship with you, our Father. So Lord, as, as the writer of Hebrews says, Lord, help us to draw near through the the curtain of Jesus' flesh and to be uh, in your presence daily living by your power and by uh, the power of the cross. Lord, we praise you. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you endure to the end. An incredible example of enduring suffering and pain for the greater purpose of God. We rejoice in you. And even as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember and we proclaim your death. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.